Um, we don't want to make this assumption often that everybody here has been to church because we live in a generation when a lot of people have never been to church. But if you grew up in church, then you have heard the story that we're talking about today a bazillion times. And that's really daunting for a preacher when you know you're going to preach something that people have heard a lot. Um, we're in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And if you've got a Bible that has headers, then at the top of that it says, The Good Samaritan. And you've seen, if, depending on your age, right, you've seen this on flannel boards. <laughs> um, you, you know, if you're from this, if you're, your children now are seeing this on version, their kids' Bible app. Um, there's, but man, you've heard this story so many times. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to help you kind of see the context of where it fits in Luke chapter 10 specifically, okay? Because what's going to happen, if there's one thing that we tend to get jacked up in the church, it is this, works. Like what are we, like we're working for Jesus. And so working for Jesus often becomes kind of working for salvation in Jesus. And we sometimes get that really, really confused. And so I want to make sure you see just in context kind of where this fits. So last week, last week we talked about Jesus sending out 72 disciples. He sent them out to preach and to heal. And if you remember from last week, they came back and they were super pumped because they said, you won't believe this, Jesus, but demons are subject to what we are saying in your name. Remember that? And so they're really pumped about what they were doing and Jesus celebrated with them and then he said this to them. Remember when we dropped the bomb? He said, hold on guys, time out. Don't rejoice over that. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life, right? And so he still, he points back to salvation. He points back to what Jesus did more than what they were doing. Next week, Next week, Phil's going to be talking. He's going to preach next week, mainly because I'm not sure I'll be walking because I'm doing an ultra this Saturday. Um, are you saying that because I might not be walking? I'm saying that because you're not going to be preaching. Oh, yeah, okay, well. <laughs> I get no respect, no respect to tell you. I get, um, that was awful. It was so much better in my head when I said it. Anyway, next week, Phil's going to be preaching. Feel free to clap. Go ahead. Just get out of your system, get out of your system. But, but he's going to preach um, the story at the end of chapter 10 on the, the, at, when Jesus is at the home of Mary and Martha, right? Martha and Mary. So Martha's in the kitchen and she's working really hard for Jesus. And, what you'll, and this is one of those sermons that's been preached before too. Phil's going to do a great job. But what I want you to get is Jesus corrected Martha because she was doing a lot for him but not spending time with him, Okay. And Phil will bring that out a whole lot more. But what you've got to see is, before the Good Samaritan, Jesus is saying, hold up, guys, it's not about what you do, it's about what I've done. After the Good Samaritan, Jesus is saying, hold up, Martha, it's not about what you do, it's about who I am, right? And so just in between that is the story of the Good Samaritan, okay? You kind of get the context. Um, here come just a flurry of cliches, okay? Just to show you how we can so quickly... Become all about activity, but for all the wrong reason. We become human doings and forget that we are human beings. We forget that our identity is more important than our activity. If you are here, if you've been here for a while and you serve as a servant leader, you've probably heard this phrase. We forget that who we are is more important than what we do. And then we just as quickly forget that what we do is still really important. But it's all tied back to who we are. It's so easy 
to become caught up in doing a lot of stuff. And so when we read the story of the Good Samaritan, the reason why I'm kind of taking some time to really couch this for you is because you're going to hear the word do a lot in this story. It is a story of action and activity and doing stuff. And if we're not careful, we'll, we'll tend to start believing that there's stuff that we can do in order to be saved. And I want you to hear me say this clearly. That is not Christianity. That is not what we believe. It's not what the Bible teaches. I think Luke does a really good job putting these three pictures together in order to remind us that everything is the result of what Jesus did. So here we are, the story of, of the Good Samaritan. And I want you to see today that it all points back to Jesus. I've only got two points to show you that it all points back to Jesus. Um, let me just read a few verses and then we'll, we'll jump into these two points. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, depending on which commentaries you read, some people will say, oh, he was just trying to catch Jesus and, you know, try to point him out and tell him he wasn't true. I think he was just really just trying to test Jesus. Like, he's just curious. He's asking a question. And he asked a pretty good question. He asked this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? What I want you to see here is that he asked Jesus two questions. Now, have you ever heard the expression, be careful what you wish for? So let's use this expression, be careful what you ask for. If you notice that we ask a lot of questions that we really don't want the answer to. Have you noticed that? Um, like, does my breath stink? You don't really want the answer. And when they whip out a carton of Altoids and go, dude, take all of them, right? You're just like, um, does this make my butt look big? You don't really want the answer, nor do we want to give an answer, right? We ask questions all the time that we don't really want an answer for. And I think that this man did the same thing. That he asked two questions that he did not really, he wasn't prepared for the answer that Jesus was going to give. So what I want you to see, the first point is that Jesus is the better answer. He asked some questions, and he's, but Jesus is the better answer. His first question was simple. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But do you see what happened in that question? He said, what must I do? To inherit eternal life. And so he's already showing his hand. He's already showing like I've got a belief. And my belief is that I can somehow do something to inherit eternal life. What I think is interesting about Jesus is Jesus could have blasted him. But he didn't. He just turned to this expert in the law. So what that means is he wasn't a lawyer like we know lawyers today. It means that he was an expert in the law. For them the law was um, first five books of the Bible, and he knew it frontwards and backwards. And so Jesus said, well, how do you, what, is the, what does the law say? How do you read it? And the man answered him correctly. Sounds very similar to our mission statement, right? Love God, love man. Be near God, near man. He answered him correctly. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. But what I want you to see is that Jesus is such a genius. He's such a genius. Not that he's setting this man up to fail, but this man asked the question, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, again, I'm, 
Well, if you could possibly do something and earn your salvation, then you would need to do these two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So go do that. And I think the whole time Jesus is saying that, he knows there's no way this man can go do that. And the man, looking to justify himself, asked the second question. What I want you to get is this. There are many answers to the question, how can I be saved? Let me just give you a couple of them. Hinduism believes this. If you can rid yourself of bad karma through your actions, you can be saved. Buddhism. If you will follow the eightfold path by acting, speaking, and living in the right manner with the right intentions, you can be saved. Islam. Salvation comes to those who obey Allah sufficiently in a way that good deeds outweigh the bad. This is just three. Every other world religion assumes the same thing that this man did, that there is something I can do that will get me salvation. And of all the, all the faiths in the world, Christianity is the only one, the only one that has the ridiculous audacity to say there is nothing you or I can do to earn salvation. Because one man has done it all. It is the only faith that claims that. This man is asking a question that our world asks every single day. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus could have said, nothing. I'm going to take care of it. But he kind of pushes, and Francis Schaeffer, who, if you don't know that name, Google it. Really brilliant apologetic. Francis Schaeffer was so good at talking to people who had wrong beliefs and showing them the right beliefs because he had, this, he had this model of how he would interact with them. And his whole approach was this. I will push you to the logical conclusion of what you believe. And you'll see that it doesn't work. And then I will share Jesus with you. And Jesus is pushing this man to the logical conclusion, which is, look, if you want to try to earn your salvation, then you better do these two things and you better do them well. And this man who's an expert in the law heard that answer and went, well, if anybody is loving God and loving their neighbor, it's got to be me. And so he asked Jesus the second question, who is my neighbor? Because he wanted to justify himself. Now, what I want you to see is that Jesus is the better answer to the question. The world offers all kinds of answers to the question, how can I be saved? But Jesus is the better answer. He is how we can be made right with God. Let me just read a few verses for you. You can jot them down. They're all going to come out of Romans. We'll go through these quick. Romans 2, chapter, Romans chapter 2, verse 13. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Romans chapter 3, verse 24. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Romans chapter 3, verse 26, and verse 24, and, and our, we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice. Because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And here's verse 26. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time 
so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus, not justifies those who do the right thing, but those who have faith in Jesus. Romans chapter 4, verse 2. Abraham was, if Abraham was justified by his works, he would have had something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, we cannot be justified by what we do. This man was saying, how can I etern- earn eternal life? And Paul says clearly, you can't. If anybody could have, it would have been Abraham, but it wasn't. Last one, um, verse, chapter 5, verses 1 and 9. Verse 1 says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 9 says, Since we now have been justified by His blood, Jesus, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? Jesus is the better answer. I'm going to give you the big idea, and then we'll, we'll unpack it as we go through the rest of this message. We're made right so we can do right. We're made right so we can do right. What you'll see in this man that approached Jesus is that he was hoping that he could do right in order to be made right. What can I do in order to earn salvation, inherit salvation? What can I just, give me the top ten, Jesus. Give me the top ten and then tell me, like, if I just do, like, seven out of those ten, I'll do it. I'll get in. So give me what I can do. Give me a list and I'll go do it. And then I will, by doing right, be made right. And that's total opposite of what Christianity is you and I are made right so we can do right man's answer to that question what can I do to be saved is something Jesus is the better answer Jesus says you can believe in me because I've done it all Jesus is the better answer and I love when when the man answered the man asked Jesus that same question, and who is my neighbor looking to justify himself? Jesus, I love people that answer questions with stories, you, you know? I mean, it can make for a long conversation, but he's like, so who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, let me tell you a story. And so he told him this story. Jesus, he's, he's always got this way of bringing heavenly truth down into earthly reality, right? He doesn't start preaching King James and like the man's like his eyes are glazing over. He tells him a story that this man's already into because this man is an expert in the law. He's a religious leader. They were called scribes. He's a religious leader in his day. He's a Jew like nobody's business. And so Jesus tells him a story that involves a Levite and a priest, people that he could relate to who are also Jews, and a Samaritan, somebody who like they hated. So he's got this man's attention right away. He tells him this story to help him understand what it means to be a neighbor. And what you'll see is, this is and I'm not smart as to know this, just as I was studying, back in the day when, when this Greek term was used, it depended on who used it as to what it meant to be a neighbor. Okay, so to the Jews, if they said neighbor, like when this man said, well, who is my neighbor? To this man, what the word neighbor meant was any member of the Hebrew nation. In other words, somebody like me. But when Jesus uses the word neighbor, it meant this. Anyone, no matter what nation or religion, with whom we live or may meet. See how this man's definition of neighbor was very small, right? My my neighbors are Panther fans. 
And Jesus said, no, no, no. Your Panthers are also Cowboy fans. Huh. Packer fans. Ashley, put your hand down. Steeler fans. I'm not even going to say the B word. <laughs> See, we, listen, when it's about us, when we define the terms, then we will always make it smaller so it's easier. Jesus came and said, no, 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 no. Your neighbor is not somebody that you want to help. Your neighbor is people that you never would have wanted to help. And do you see how by Jesus telling this story, what he's showing this man is there's no way that you can do what I'm telling you you have to do to be saved. Your heart only wants to help people that are like you if you even want to help them. But you'll never want to be a neighbor to a Samaritan without me changing your heart. What he's saying to this man is, I need to make you right so that you can do right. And this man is trying to do right in order to be made right. So the story goes like this. Jesus says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man... He passed by on the other side. Just real quick, I'm going to make this point. When I first was studying this, I wanted to really drive home the fact that maybe the Samaritan was the only person who saw the man. That maybe sometimes we are so busy with the things that we do that we don't even see people. And then Jesus blew it up because what you're going to see is that the priest saw the man and still ignored it. The Levite saw the man and still ignored him. They all saw him. Let's continue. That was a hard point. So to a Levite. When he, passed by, when, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, and again, Jews and Samaritans did not get along. So if you're, the, if you're the expert in the law and Jesus is telling you a story, when you heard that a priest saw him, what you're thinking is, surely he's going to help. What? He didn't help? But then a Levite came. Okay, well, yeah, he, yeah, this is, the man's hope is right here. It's a Levite. What? He didn't help either? And then Jesus said, but then a Samaritan came here, and he's thinking, the dude's dead. He's got no shot. It's a Samaritan. So can you imagine his shock in this story when Jesus says, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, we've lost something in the translation here, okay? And you will dig into this a lot more in your community groups. I'll just make a quick point of it. The NIV says, when he saw him, he took pity on him. In some of the other translations, it talks about having compassion and in a really weird Greek word. The Greek word for have compassion literally means to be moved in the bowels. I did not bring a picture. <laughs> they believed that, that the bowels were the seat of your will. Like they, so if you were moved with compassion, like you, again, I don't want to draw this out too much. I think you can do your own job of painting a mental picture here, right? Um, but you know what it's like to be moved by your bowels, Right? You're, you're pushing people out of the way. You're driving way past the speed limit to get home to the bathroom. So when you are moved with compassion in Scripture, you are moved. I love how Christine Kane says it. She says, compassion crosses the street. Compassion is not an emotion. It is a motion. We are moved by compassion. You don't feel compassion. You move. You do compassion. 
The priest and Levite felt no compassion, did nothing. They didn't even cross the street. A Samaritan was moved with compassion, and he crossed the street. Um, Jot this down. I think this is what Jesus is trying to get across, that God wants to move our heart before we can move our feet. He has to move our heart before we can move our feet. And a lot of times you'll try to do the right thing, but your heart's not really in it. Or as the Greeks would have said, your bowels aren't really in it. Ugh, so weird. But sometimes we try to do the right thing, but we're not moved. We've not been made right. And what Jesus is getting at is, I want to be the person who moves you. I want to change you. I want to make you right so that you can then do right. So that you can be moved. So the Samaritan moved in the bowels towards this man who was beaten up. And so what does he do? Because he, because he sees him and he has compassion. And compassion crosses the street. Compassion does something. What does he do? He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He put him in his car. Didn't care that it was going to get blood all over it, right? He took him to an inn and he took care of him. The next day, so he spent the night in the motel taking care of an enemy. And the next day, he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after me, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you. For any extra expense you may have. Short story. Big point. Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? What I love about this next verse is that the, the, the expert the law could not even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He said, you know, the one, that one. You know, the one that did the right, that did the good, the one that showed him compassion. He couldn't even say it. That's how, that's the animosity between Jew and Samaritan. He couldn't even say it. The lawyer wanted to love people like him, and Jesus showed us that he, Jesus, is the better neighbor. Here's why. Jesus found us naked. He found us left for dead. Jesus picked us up. He anoints us. Jesus heals us. He paid the price for our sins. And listen, that sounds like such a good story. Romans 5.8, just jot that down. Romans 5.8 is what really drives us home. All the things that Jesus did for us, he did for us while we were his enemies. If you um, have grown up in church, if you have ever been to um, a revival where an evangelist preaches and he gets like really intense. He gets red in the face. One of the, one of the favorite closing statements by an evangelist is this. If you had been the only person on earth, Jesus would have still died for you. It's true. It's true. But if you're the only one on earth, you would have killed him. You would have spit in his face. You would have put the thorns on his head. You would have nailed him to the cross. You would have mocked him. And then he would have died for you. See, we were his enemies. There wasn't anything good in us. We were his enemies. And while we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8 says, Christ died for us. He is the better neighbor. He is the better answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Believe on Jesus. He is the better neighbor because he's the one who did what the Samaritan in the story did 
for us. And all of that brings us to the question, so what? The two-word question that every preacher hates, right? Because I can preach a fantastic sermon, and I just did. <laughs> and we can all say, so what? And if there's not an answer to that, then what was the point, right? What was the point of you getting up this morning and coming and sitting in a bar? What was the point of you saying yes to your friend that asked you to come to the gathering this morning? What was the point if we can't answer the question, so what? What are we supposed to do as a result of Jesus being the better answer and the better neighbor? And the answer, thankfully, is right at the end of our passage. Four words. Jesus told the man, go and do likewise. Not in order to be made right, but because we are made right. Because Jesus has made us right. Listen, religion says do right and eventually you'll be right. Christianity says we're made right so we can do right. It's an interesting verse in 2 Corinthians 5.14. It says this. I kept thinking like, what, how, does, how do we get changed, right? How do we get changed because Jesus makes us right? And Paul said that the love of God in Christ Jesus compels me compels me to go like I don't have a choice it's like it compels me I must go I, I say this all the time being compelled is is what happens after you eat Mexican food right it's like you're compelled it has to come out you're compelled Jesus says his love compels us to go it makes all the difference so today, there's, there's two people in here that I want to pray for. And, and Phil's going to come. He's going to start playing something awesome, and it's going to be great. Two people I want to pray for. One, you're here this morning, and you are on the side of the road. You, you are beat up. And it's quite possible that you're beat up by religion. You're beat up by church. It was all you could do to come this morning because church has beaten you up. You can relate to... Robbers robbing you, almost killing you, and looking up and seeing priest and Levite thinking, surely they're going to help me, and they passed you by. Some of you, that's your story this morning. You've been passed by. The good news for you is that Jesus is a better neighbor. Jesus doesn't pass us by, right? There's the second group in here, and it's those of you that are are in love with Jesus. Somehow in your mind, being made right so that you can do right has it started to get a little bit fuzzy. And so I, I, you feel this need to always do the right thing so you can somehow be loved more by God. And this morning I want to pray that He sets you free from that, that you really see the love of Christ that makes us right. And that when we are made right, we will then do right. You can come on, Phil. I think, I think sometimes what happens is, is that we forget that when Jesus makes us right, his love starts to compel us to do right. And it's all, it makes all the difference. If you've ever tried to earn something, 
by doing something you didn't really want to do. I mean, you hope the payoff is worth it. But if you've ever been given what you were trying to earn, isn't it amazing how suddenly you want to do the right thing? It's crazy. Can I just, can I end this way? Um, I wasn't going to tell the story, but I'm going to tell it. It's just a, such a great story. When I was growing up, um, my dad and I didn't get along at all. He's heard the story, so if you see him on the streets, you can have, I mean, <laughs> no, wait. Back, he's not on the streets, but, you know, if you see him. <laughs> if you see him while you're around town, you know, he, he knows the story. He wouldn't be surprised I'm telling it. Probably a good way to close this morning. So I really want you to get this. When I was growing up as a teenager, he and I did not get along at all. I mean, like, if you can hate your father, I hated my father. He probably hated me right back. And, and we would fight all the time. Um, I, I remember sitting on the porch one night, and he and I just trying to have a normal conversation, and, and it just became a yelling match. And my mom was like, why are y'all yelling? And we're both like, because he's not hearing me. I mean, it was bad. Remember the night that I, I, I stood toe-to-toe with my dad, and on the inside I was just like, please, God, let him hit me so I can just punch him back. You know, I mean, that's bad, right, when you feel about your dad. And the one thing that we fought over more than anything else was my bed, making my bed. Because, you know, like I would tell my dad, it's my bed. And then he would play the parent trump card and say, but it's in my... Oh, so you're... Okay, you've had that conversation too. And so I, I started, I would close my door and I wouldn't make my bed because then I, then I felt like if he opened my door, it was an invasion of privacy. Anyway, it's a whole big deal and it was, it was constant. And it was one morning that I, I got up really early to go to work and I, I got up, everybody was still sleeping. I did not make my bed. I closed my door. I went down the hall. I got my big bowl out and I poured my cereal in it and I'm eating my cereal and I heard footsteps coming down the hall and you know your parents have different sets there's like different sounds of footprints right like your dad's footprints are I'm going to kill you and your mom's are like I'm bringing cookies right you can just tell the difference can't you so I heard I heard the I'm going to kill you footsteps I knew it was my dad and I heard him like the way the house was set up you know I'm in the front and you had this long hall the room I was in was halfway down the hall and then his room was at the very back so I heard the footsteps I heard them stop and I just knew I just knew that my dad was peeking in my room at my bed and I knew I hadn't made it and you ever just I can feel it right now <laughs> you ever get so mad you just feel it on the inside like you know you just uh, like things it's white around the edges because you're just so and I just I was at the table I just tensed up I just tensed up and I I knew and I heard the footsteps continue and I knew he was coming to, to see me and I, I, put, I put my spoon down, my fists were clenched up, you know, good and tight. And I just was watching the door back to the hall. And I saw the doorknob turn and he opened it. And my dad, <laughs> my dad peeked his head out. And my dad used to have a comb over, so you got to picture all that. But um, he doesn't anymore, hallelujah. <laughs> but he peeked his head out. And my dad, um, early in the morning, this sounds really bad to say, but I want to make sure you get the picture. My dad kind of looks like a turtle, a little bit like a turtle. Uh, and Bob Newhart, right? So if you're old enough to know Bob Newhart, so that's a little mash of Bob Newhart and Turtle Seas. He pokes his head out, and he said, hey, Paul. And I said, what? I just wanted to say, I hope you have a nice day today. And he closed the door, and I heard the footsteps go back to the bedroom. And, and it blew my mind. 
Now, I don't know what you would have done. But I got up and I went back and made my bed. And I realized what Romans 2, 4 is all about. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. God's not beating you up over the head because you're on the side of the road almost dead. And He's not beating you up if you've been the priest and the Levite and you've been so busy trying to do the right thing that you've not done the obvious thing, which is to be moved with compassion to people who are hurting. But in this moment, do you see the kindness of God? And will you allow that to draw you to repentance?